1: Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Amy. Good morning, Dr. Joy. How are you today?
0: I am wonderful today, and I am excited about our conversation. Well, kind of excited, because some of it is grim news. We're talking about something that's a little unusual in the sense that we'll be talking about our current criminal justice system in a way. Currently, we have 6.7 million adults, which is 3% of adult population behind bars or on parole. Research shows instead of incarceration curbing crime, we just have a revolving door in our prison system. So this is a huge expense for everyone involved. There's also some research about linking incarceration to reading scores. You've heard that, right? And so there's research about looking at third grade reading scores and linking that to prospects and making projections of how many people will be in prison 10 years from that time or 20 years from that time, because one of the things that we know about prisoners is that there's a very low literacy rate. So really what they're looking at is they're looking at literacy and determining based on literacy, how many people can we anticipate going to prison? And there's so much disparity in who goes to prison. This all starts at such a young level. We talked about illiteracy. And so that's why the conversation that we're having today about restorative justice is so, so, so important. Restorative justice is this way that actually kind of redeems people. So it's that opportunity to redeem not only the person who is the offender, but it actually can help the person who has been affected who has been directly affected, the victim, or the community that has been affected. So restorative justice is an alternative way. Instead of putting people in prison, instead of putting kids in juvenile detention, we can use restorative justice as a response, as an alternative to turn those lives around. And I know not just for that offender, victims need it just as much. So we're going to have sort of a grim conversation, but it's a real conversation that we need to have. And it kind of brings me hope.
1: I'm excited to introduce Dr. Shaniqua Jones. She completed her doctoral degree in interdisciplinary leadership with a specialization in higher education in May, 2016. Her diverse background in academics and her profession as well as her personal journey has allowed her to understand the concerns of those she serves. With a proven professional code of high standards within the post-secondary arena, she accepted a two-year assignment as Director of Community Engagement and Diversity Programs at Trinity Christian College. For the 2018-19 academic year, she used her collection of of experiences in her work as the Restorative Justice Coordinator, Dean of Students at Chicago Collegiate Charter School, and the restorative justice trainings that she provides to church, schools, community organizations, the Cook County Southland Juvenile Justice Council, and the Illinois Department of Juvenile Justice. Currently, Dr. Jones is the coordinator of restorative justice and restorative practices with Thornton Township High School District 205. With a national platform as the founder of Purple Path, Dr. Jones has been able to continue educating and serving students, parents, guardians, educators, and more through her restorative justice 101 courses offered online. Dr. Jones is a wife and mother of five children, as well as an author of seven astonishing works. Welcome to our show, Dr. Jones. Good day, everyone. How are you? Good morning,
0: phenomenal woman. How are you? (laughs) I'm great, and you? I am great. We're going to have a conversation this morning about restorative justice. And Amy and I, we were just talking about some of the statistics of incarceration and using restorative justice as an alternative. And so you have a personal story. And and I've been thinking about that personal story often. I kind of describe it as a story about grace and how restorative justice has made it possible for you to be the phenomenal woman that you are today. And if it were not for grace, if, or, if it were not for restorative justice in your personal life, where do you think you would be now?
2: Truth be told, I, I would, I'd be at probably Burroughs Cemetery, truth be told. You know, facing death on in, in several situations and in most of those situations, they were situations out of my control and having a poverty mindset combined with mental illness and, and other situations that are sensitive in, in subject matter, I, I would be dead.
0: So you've had some challenges in life, right? I've read some of your material, which I encourage everyone to go to your website. But you talk about teen pregnancy, you talk about poverty, homelessness, promiscuity, shame, cancer, you talk about all those things. I mean, you just really give your entire authentic self. And you have been able to take your life lessons and apply it to your career how much of what you went through if if you could share some things whatever you're comfortable with but if you could share some things how much of what you went through has gone into your adult your life work of what you're doing now
2: (laughs) pretty much everything so my I, I have a passion for youth and that passion for youth come with having a likeness and a passion for the people that are attached to them which are typically their families and it may not be the traditional sense of what we consider a family but family nonetheless and so when you talk about teen pregnancy when you talk about the pressures that come along with not knowing your self-worth and so therefore you are not necessarily seen as a leader you're a follower in the negative sense and trying to be someone that you're not because of societal stigmas because of peer pressure and because of you just not knowing who you are, especially at that, that young age when you're really trying to navigate what life looks like. And then you, now these the thankful thing is that I didn't have social media when I was coming up, but now social media has more of a presence. And now that we are in the midst of this global pandemic and the heightened sensitivity that is coupled with racial and social unrest, it has made it where people are have more access to the lies than ever before. And so... When you talk about all the things I've gone through in my life, I've just been able to humanize those experiences because most times our youth don't have the ability to share exactly how they are feeling. They don't know how to compartmentalize their emotions. And so what better way to do that than to humanize and normalize my own personal experiences and being able to show the power of storytelling so that maybe there's something about my story, something about my journey, something about my path that makes like give them an aha moment to say, okay, we are allowed to make mistakes and we can come out on the other side oh, you're a Black woman. You come from the same neighborhood I, I came from, and you, you found power in education, like the key to education, and look where you are now. Because I come from a neighborhood where if you go through P through 12, that's beautiful. If you don't, it's okay. And we don't talk about scholarships. We don't talk about But We don't talk about what it looks like to live on a college campus and self-discipline and and, you know, the autonomy you have, whether you go to class and all those things. And so when you think about everything that I've gone through from my childhood up until where I am right now, they have all been used to, to, to do the work that I'm, I'm here and called to do.
1: Well, Let's talk about restorative justice in a school setting. What does sure. that look like? What, what is your mission? What is it that you hope to accomplish? To be honest, it it means
2: really a complete overhaul, because what you will see is that restorative justice is not just a buzzword, it is a way of life and it has historical context. But more importantly, it's being able to implement, uh, properly implement and successfully execute in the way that is conducive to meet the needs of the people you serve. And oftentimes what happened is, and I understand as an administrator and as a, you know, you could be the superintendent or a board member and you have an idea of what you hope for based on the vision. But most times we don't think about the baby steps we need to take in order to complete and get to the, the overall vision that we got to learn how to meet people where they are in order to get them to where they need to be. And sometimes we try to bypass meeting people where they are and just tell them and dictate. And when you dictate, that's not being restorative because you're not learning how to do things with people. You're learning to do things to them, which is not empowering them, you're enabling them. And then there's their authoritative figure where it might have that fear factor. So how are people gonna be able to learn how to effectively use their voice in a school setting, especially when it comes to our children, if they're not shown the proper way in order to do so? Or when they have a concern and they may not have the context to come to you and use the verbiage and the language that you are accustomed to or hoping for then is seen as a form of disrespect and so now you created another barrier and then do you live in the communities that you serve and when you don't live in those communities and you can go to a, a home that is fully furnished and the lights are on all the utility bills are paid and you don't have to worry about basic necessities it's hard for you to come from a place of compassion and empathy if you can't relate to any of the things that are those people that you serve. What I appreciate about my journey is being able to just really do a complete overhaul and reimagine what education looked like from the foundational component, from the outside in, not the inside out. And so that looks like I would love to see the parent support. I just finished my seventh book, you know, the shameless plug. It just came yesterday in the mail. Pineapple Orange Juice, Bridging the Gap Between Parents and Educators. That's a piece that I think is very important because when parents or family support systems have unhealed issues. If you make the attempt as a school to implement restorative justice and properly execute it, and then they go home to a toxic environment, all the work you've done in the school is pretty much null and void. And I say that because I can learn the, the ways and the structure and of how I need to operate in a school setting, but if it's not appreciated and if that authoritative figure in the household says, this is not how we roll, then therefore, what is that child left to do? So then they come back from the weekend or a winter break or COVID, you know, the pandemic, and they come off, not in all cases, they come back worse than they were when they came before the pandemic. And so it really means... One, the parent orientation. You know, we big on having parent orientation and, and introducing families to, hey, this is our school. This is the handbook. We wear uniforms. These are the fees. This is the this how we handle discipline. And if your child does this, then therefore this is the punishment. And so there's this one size fit all approach to discipline. And then it's punitive. And it's not, no research has shown over the years that it does not solve anything. And so when we're talking about what it looks like in a school setting, I would love to see how we have parental support orientation. That's not just a one and done, but something where if we can help the parents make that shift, if we can give them the support that they need in terms of physical needs, spiritual needs, I mean, we can go as far as you would like, but making sure that their basic necessities are met, as well as the mental capacity, because, you know, mental illness is not something we talk about often, because it's shame. Therefore, if you can learn how to to infuse restorative justice in the home so that we can read not not just reimagine education but redefine the village then you have more you can increase the opportunities that our children have to have every equitable and every alternative measures in place so that they can thrive and matriculate from P through 12 and beyond.
0: Right, you're reading my mind. It sh- <laughs> it truly really takes a village. I can recall at my former university when we implemented restorative justice And this came out of adding sports programs to our school, and that was to attract a younger uh, pool of students. And when you're working with young adults, you have different challenges. And I can recall our first opportunity to implement restorative justice was when a young man took his check from the bursar's office and added a zero. And in adding that zero, that could have been a felony. And so we had an opportunity to make a decision is this where we th- is this the right time we can either call the police or we can implement restorative justice and we decided to implement restorative justice and it changed it changed his life it was a life altering decision for him but it was a it was a change for all of us because it took work it's not like sitting down and having one conversation you know how your parents discipline you and they focus on that one thing that you did and you're trying to get through this 10 minutes of long conversation or whatever your discipline policy is and then be done with it. Restorative justice doesn't work like that. This is ongoing work with that individual and we know it takes a village. So how do you operationalize? How do you motivate? How do you infuse this mindset in administration, teachers and the parents? Because I know you're leading this but you can't be the only one Implementing
2: this, correct. So it's great to know that I have a great superintendent in my role. Um, shout out to Dr. Cunningham, Thorn Township High School District Two Zero Five, and so he has really given me the autonomy to do what need what is needed to be done. More importantly, that's where I come from. You know, I graduated from Thornwell High School, and so a lot has changed and a lot has remained the same. With that being said, I have a great support system in terms of community organizations that I'm connected to and with. I have internal support in, in terms of our restorative justice specialists who oversee different processes in the school so that even though I'm one person, I have people that are stationed in each one of the school buildings or one of the, each one of the campuses so that. We are all on the same page. And so one of the things that I've been tasked to do is create a district-wide restorative justice plan. And I'm taking it like this complete overhaul. I'm comparing comparing it to all discipline process that were in place prior to me coming on board. Outside of doing that, also creating a mandated restorative justice training series that is ongoing throughout the school year. So being able to have each staff and administrator who is a part of, who are considered shareholders in our entire school district will complete this training series. And it consists of restorative justice one-on-one, the basic fundamentals of what restorative justice is and the differences between restorative justice and restorative practices so that we can stop using those two terms interchangeably. And then from a life application perspective, including adverse childhood experiences so that we can also focus on trauma and empathy. Another thing that we're also discussing is racial and the restorative approach to racial and social unrest, time management skills, all that, everything. When you understand restorative justice as a way of life, there is not one thing, whether you talk about social emotional learning, PBIS, and all these other different initiatives that we heard throughout education over the years, all these things fall under the umbrella of restorative justice. And so being able to have those opportunities for our parent coordinators, our head of security, anyone that comes in contact with a child, our janitorial staff, who else, community resources that are available, any memorandum of understandings that we have, everyone has to be in alignment with what our mission and the vision is as we move and navigate this process of going from not even necessarily zero tolerance, but being as restorative as we possibly can be, not in just it's in different forms and fashion and picking up restorative justice and putting it down when we get ready. But this it will be the only form of discipline that we will utilize. And so being able to know that we'll have reset rooms. And so I'm creating a reset room checklist. What does a reset room consist of? And sometimes, you know, the language that we use. So reset may not be the proper word, but we have to make sure that whatever we, we how will we define this space is going to be a safe space. Because I mean, teachers and administrators, we have our offices and we have our teacher staffs and staff rooms and our lounges. What does that look like when our children have the same opportunity? So to, to bounce back from whatever that situation may be, or how can we learn to be more proactive is by being able to have relationships with our students so they know that they could come to you and rely on you and not see you as authoritative figure in terms of controlling the situation, but being able to either rehumanize those who've been dehumanized or humanize those you never even humanized in the, in the first place and being able to understand what are your biases? What are some past traumas that you've experienced as an adult who's in this classroom? Why is Johnny triggering you? I need you to take a step back and sit with yourself because the power reflection is so strength, that's strength within itself. And so when you're able to do that, it gives you a better understanding of how you navigate, how you teach, how can we be more creative? How can we have this reciprocity where children are, like my children come to me and they teach me, like, I know at the end of the day, before you walk out of my office, you know, you're going to get some words of encouragement. You might even get a scripture and who knows, but you're going to get something that you can walk away. That's a tangible tool that's going to stick with you because I, I'm, I'm not coming at you like, oh, my name is Dr. Shaniqua Jones. They'd be like, hey, Dr. J, was good? We gonna talk about gym shoes. We might talk about the newest rapper, the new what Cardi B done did now, whatever the case may be, whatever attracts them, I wanna hear it. And so when they're telling me things, then I'm like, okay, this new lingual, okay. So now we're saying, instead of saying that's my best friend, we're gonna say lock and key, gotcha. So now that I have that in my tool belt, so you taught me something, now let me teach you something. And then every day it's like, when they come to the office, like, hey, I'm not having a good day today, doc well, what's going on? Let's talk about it. Let me get this passed. Let me let your teacher know you're down here, but you only got two, three minutes. So if you're trying to not, this is a matter, you just not want to go to class because you got a test today. That's not what we're going to do. So if I need to walk to class with you, and if I need to sit for a few minutes, just so I can see you get acclimated, no, I'm here for you. If I need to call home, if something is happening, tell me what's up now. Let me know what's happening. So i can be the liaison so that you can form the relationship with the teacher. So I don't have to always be the go-to. And so I could go on and on, but this this is my jam. I love I love everything I do.
1: You know, it's like we're <laughs> putting arms around students and educators. It's a wrap around system and everyone needs to be in that same boat together to understand what the right hand and left hand is doing and everyone has to be on the same page. Now, this sounds extremely time consuming, I mean, the amount of time invested in the training and the understanding of what restorative justice is and the protocols and the rooms and the space. Everyone has to be on board, Mm -hmm. everyone in the building. How were you able to get buy-in for developing a district-wide plan such as the one you're describing?
2: So when I initially started my, well, was reintroduced to the, my the best school district ever not as a student but as a con, as a contractual con, agreement that i've had with the school district as well with the cook county southland juvenile justice council i came in as a contractor to assist at one particular school which was Thornridge high school located in dalton illinois and so in that particular school year it was rough mainly because I, even though I'm, I'm known in the community but I'm almost like the outsider coming in to like, oh, Lord, she's com- she's coming. She's directed from the district office. So be careful what you say and what you do around her. So it was a little tedious at first. But one is it was it's always been my posture. I've always asked God, you know, and I know sometimes, you know, people are like, oh, don't say that word. No, nah, that's that's just where I'm at in my life. And I'm not ashamed of it. I've always asked God to give me a spirit of discernment when I'm anytime I walk into a situation, give me the right words, give me the posture, give me the walk, give me the talk. And give me the eye contact. Cause sometimes it's all of you know, it's the things that you don't say that catches people's attention. And so when they see this, you know, heavy set black woman come in with a hoodie on and yoga pants and gym shoes. And the first thing a student comes, it's easy for you know, being bald, children can be cruel, but they also they're real. <laughs> and it may come off as being a form of disrespect, but because I know the language and I know who I am and I know whose I am, for one of the first day I walked in, it was like, hey, who are you? hey, where you get them J's from? I'm like, oh, right here at the footlocker, right here by y'all school, what's up? Hey, how much you pay for them? I'm like, how much do you think I paid for them? I'm like, I didn't get it for a deal, you know? And it just started that conversation that I've had with students and then the stabbing like, well, who is this woman? She seemed kind of dope, but I really don't know. And so I've just been able to live the life. It's not something that I, I hide. It's not something that I do part-time. This is who I am 24 seven. And so that's been one thing. The other thing is too, is just, Really like, hey, let's break bread. You know, it's always good to have a meal with someone that, that kind of <laughs> break the whatever barrier that could exist. And so just being able to bring in snacks, not just for the kids, but for the adults too. Handwriting messages. You know, I was big on that growing up. I, I love to write. So if it's something that I see, I want to be able to show thankfulness for people who are inviting me into their space. And then how can not only only this be an invitation of me being invited into your space, and thank you for inviting me, but how can I make this home for all of us? That's been key.
0: Great. We are talking (laughs) to Dr. Shaniqua Jones. She is dope. She is phenomenal. She is an alum of Governor State University. She is an administrator, student support personnel, and she is restoring lives that's what you're doing in this restorative justice. You're restoring lives. And I want to get back to you because I just find your life story and your work very fascinating. Mm-hmm. And in your book, in your speaking engagements and even with your own children, you kind of bear all. <laughs> that, and, and, and for a parent, I know that that's difficult. Every shameful moment that I've had in my life, I want to keep that secret. I don't want you you don't want to necessarily share those things with your children. And even though you have the realization that if I share my story, maybe it'll prevent them from having some of the challenges that you have, but it's difficult. So how difficult has it been for you to bear all and what's the cost of you bearing all? And most importantly, what's been the benefit?
2: So I'm going to start with the hardest part it has caused temporary separation between my internal family when it comes to my mom and my three older brothers. I am the youngest of four children. I'm the only girl. I'm the baby. I'm 40. <laughs> my mom would be 81 next month. My dad passed, but if he was still alive, he'd be, he'll he be 86. So that just shows you in, in that term alone, that's that's quite a bit. And then my brothers were 13, 15, and 17 when I was born. And so they were raised differently than I was. That By the time my mom had me it was more of, I got away with a lot. Um, she was older. And then on top of that, living in a household where what happens in this house stays in this house, not in the sense that I didn't have a great upbringing or I didn't have a humble beginning, but my mom and my brothers are very private. I'm not a private person. I'm, I'm pretty public and I'm an extrovert while they're, they're, I won't say they're introverts, but they're very reserved. And because they grew up in a generation totally different than mine, where we may have had more, as we get, the generations get older and older, older, they have more autonomy and have more voice, whether they're using their voice effectively or not. What you see now is, you know, when you see what's happening in our world in protests, you see a lot of young people. And sometimes it comes off as being, again, a, a form of disrespect because it's not done a certain way. And and, and that's, that's not part of the tradition but I, you know, I dispel and I, I rebuke the idea that tradition is right. And that's some traditional methods may be great, but tradition doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. It just means it's been your norm. And when someone does something that's outside of the the norm, usually are ostracized. And so that has happened to me. I'm, I am thankful though. Like we, we back in it, we back, the, back down, like we never left. And, um, but it took some time and it took some understanding and what I do appreciate about me being open about my own life journey and and things I had to overcome. It wasn't to shame anyone else. And it definitely wasn't. I came out on the other side. And so things I used to be ashamed of, I can't be the best person I possibly can be. If I'm going to allow my past to condemn, you know, continuously to condemn me or I, I allow my past to control me. And so I say all that to say that sometimes we're going to have to make sacrifices as hard as it may be and as as hurtful and painful that it may be. I don't want people to go through the hurt and pain, but if it's going to come to to assist in the greater good, to know that now that I've shared my life story, my mom has written a book that was 2018 or 2019. So she's well way past 75 and wrote her first self-published book because what she realized was that me sharing my story saved lives and my mantra I live my life out of mantra a journey not shared is a soul not healed and so I'm just thankful that even though it was hard and painful to have that temporary separation from my family we're better now than we've ever been and now they don't see me as Shan who's younger than not than me that it's impossible for her to have knowledge and wisdom and I'm not saying that's how they always felt but I never really had a say-so in anything because I was the baby. And now you have my middle brother, who is very strict, (laughs) Roderick Armstrong. That is my bro. For him, like you might see some things back here on my wall, but there is one birthday card he gave me for my 40th birthday, and I cried like a baby. Because it, 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 he took time to find the right card that spoke to exactly how he felt about me over the years, even in terms of some of the disappointments. But to know that he's still in the land of the living to see his baby sister come out on the other side is the greatest gift he's ever been able to see. And so for my mom to call me to come back here and say that I'm one of the strongest women she's ever met in her life and she's she will be 81. I I mean, if I was to leave, leave Earth today, I, I would be definitely satisfied. That was some of the hard times, but when it came to the positive things, like my children and I, we have a great relationship. We probably joke around a lot too much sometimes. You know, we're in the pandemic, so we're trying to make the best of every opportunity we have. And so that's been a silver lining for us in terms of this pandemic is, I'm being able to see them for who they really are, 24 seven, 365. (laughs) But I also am thankful because they're open sometimes too open. If I say I'm going to lead the way, and if I say I'm going to operate a certain way, and this is the way I live, then therefore I have to be able to take what I'm able to, you know, receive. It has to be some reciprocity in this entire process. And they do it in a respectful manner, but sometimes I'm just like, if I had hair, it would probably be sticking up on my head. And I just love how, I I love their growth. I love that they have the capacity to, to love me wholeheartedly, even in Especially when it comes to my oldest two who have seen quite a bit. They've all seen, you know, witnessed and experienced quite a bit because we fail to realize oftentimes as parents, we're not perfect. And so we do ourselves a disservice if we don't have the conversations that about things that they've experienced. Because it's easy for me to be selfish and say, this is what I went through. But we have to understand that whatever decisions you make, good, not so good, or indifferent, don't just affect you, it affect everyone connected to you. We good. I love them. Love
1: them to death. You're really speaking to a group of educators here, the parents. And so often we need to be thinking about how do we be real with our children, especially in the different remote learning and teaching that we've had to experience this past year and a half with alternate schedules, children at home more, we are seeing 24/7 365 who our children are. And if we think about the challenges that 2020 brought to education both from the parent, the community, the school standpoint, we have to think about how we have to re-see education and redefine the village and reimagine. So what are some ways that your district is reimagining education? One of the things
2: I really love, I've also been invited into classrooms, Google Meet basically, (laughs) where I come alongside some of the educators who really are grasping the concept of what restorative justice is because I'm providing the training. and, And that's another thing going through this pandemic has given many of us an opportunity. One, it gives you opportunity to see who's who. Let's just be honest. Prior to COVID, you know, there might have been certain, and not just in my school district, so this is no shame or, any, or anything, but this is a real moment where you really get to see who's who, who are the real shareholders who are doing the work, and who are those who kind of just lingering around, and this is no longer their passion, and it's now it's just the paycheck, and I mean, I love a paycheck, don't get me wrong, but I'm, I'm about the passion, the, the money will come when you do what you're supposed to do. And so one of the things we've been able to do, I've, I've done some restorative justice one-on-one trainings with the educators in, in different buildings. And because of the relationship, it's not coming off as a transaction, we're building relationships in this training. So it's more like a deep dialogue and we're delving into this work together. And it's not Dr. Jones program, it's not a program what's, you know whatsoever, it's the way of life. And so one of the things that has happened and, and has flourished from those trainings is I'm being invited into classrooms like, hey, my students just need a little motivation outside of me. And so that gives the the teacher, I'm supporting the teacher or the paraprofessional, and then I'm also supporting the students. And so when they see that they can call on me or they can call one of my team members who've also been trained to say, hey, I just need you to step in the classroom and share some words of motivation. It doesn't have to be about restorative justice whatsoever per se, but when you start to have the conversation, that's restorative in nature because that's who we are. And so we're talking about how do you build social capital in the classroom? How do you hold yourself accountable? What are some challenges that you're facing? So now we have like these virtual safe spaces that's also flourished from this process where students are able to check in. They have school Monday through Thursday and Friday are support days and outside of support days. They have opportunities with SAVE, which is Students Against Violence Everywhere, with our counselors, our social workers and the restorative justice team to come along and just have those conversations about brave spaces and what does that look like and it's outside of the academics. We're meeting the students on a a different level. Along with that, some of the other things we've been able to do is work with some of the community organizations, taking a real look at what do. Everybody has, I'm pretty sure you know, most times in education, when it comes down to the resources that are available in the community, there's a beautiful, colorful, alphabetical order of all the different resources that are available to every shareholder that's in the school district, the families and things of that nature. But what you really need to do is have someone, it can't just be the social worker that has access to this. The social worker, usually there's like the ratio is what one social worker to almost 500 students. Uh-huh.
0: What?
2: Where they do that at? Like, that's not real. <laughs> like, how, how? how can we really accomplish success when you have a ratio like that? And so one of the things we've been able to do is really take a look at this resource guide, not just our guide, but I've worked with other school districts where the resource guide looked beautiful, but you call the call the number, it's disconnected. You call another number, they no longer offer those services. And then I'm, I'm, I know we're adults on here and I, I'm, I'm not trying to be uh, ignorant or disrespectful, but I call it being RFP pimped. And what I mean by that is, is that, you have organizations that come along and they love the work that they do, whether they're for profit or non-for profit. But when it comes down to looking for funding opportunities, and they put in for this proposal, whatever the case may be, and the proposal say, "Well, I understand these are the services you provide, but if you want to get this money, then we need you to make a shift." And so every time that they go for a funding opportunity, they shift. And so they 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 lose their passion. They lose, you know, they move away from the original mission and vision. So now we haven't been in communication because all alone we think, hey, they still offer this service for families. And so when we call them, or what happens is we give, you know, a family who we have to understand ego is a killer. E- I think ego kills more than anything else. And so when you have people who are move their ego to the side, or you say, okay, let me move my pride so that. I can get the help that I need and they come to you as a safe and brave space. And then you give them this nice little referral form to go to a community organization and they get there and they told like, oh, we don't even offer that anymore. We lose. We all lose. Because for the one time and I've been there and see the reason why I know these things is because of my own life experience. I remember needing assistance and they gave me this nice little pink referral form that remind me of a disconnection notice. So, you know, we got to think of all these things about our posture. Right. <laughs> we got a we got an opportunity to really do some great things if we utilize the time that has been given to us and i know i've lost quite a few people due to covid and so i'm i'm not sitting here saying like oh it's been all peaches and cream it has been hurtful um but at the same time we have an opportunity to really change how we operate to create positive sustainable change
0: i'm going to steal that from you <laughs> rfp yeah, I'm going to remember that. What a disgrace for people who do that. But I completely understand and and what is the outcome? And that's what we really have to be thinking about. I, I wanna change just a little. When we talk about restorative justice, oftentimes we think about behavior, right? Mm-hmm. But behavior has to do with our readiness to learn. So that behavior and literacy, it's connected. There's an intersection there. And earlier, Amy and I, we were talking about some call it a myth, but we do know that prison systems, they use literacy scores, right? They use literacy score to project on how many incarcerated people they're going to have 15 Mm -hmm. years later, 20 years later, because we know that most people in prison have low literacy scores. So we know that there is a direct correlation. So when you talk about it saving lives, it truly does save lives. I just want people to know that when you say that, it is really, it's not just life altering. It does save lives. I want you to talk about maybe some some personal benefits that you have seen. If you could share one or two stories about Some of the benefits that you've seen of implementing restorative justice in high school and in higher education.
2: Oh, so I kind of want to go back to um, uh, something you said, and I do know research has shown that as early as third grade is when they do like their first snapshot of determining what the prospects are going to look like when it comes down to prison. And so that's how that whole school to prison pipeline come about. But when you see the, the, how we witnessed police brutality and racism, many of us are saying that COVID is the deadliest virus and it's not, it's racism. I agree. And so I've seen some of the strongest young men that, that look similar to me, very smart, very intelligent may be creative in the way that they approach uh, responding to answers in, in in the classroom, very articulate, but because of the color of their skin and because of timing and because of the vehicle they may drive and because they wore a hoodie, because they were born, when it's all said and done, like I could keep going on and on about all the different reasons as to the, why, the reason why something happened. But this leads to one of my success stories So there's this program, and as the restorative justice chairwoman of the Cook County Southland Juvenile Justice Council, I partner with a church in Harvey, Illinois, which is where I'm born and raised. And if you don't know by now, everything I do goes back to my home, my stomping grounds, whether it's Governor State University, District 205, District 152, Harvey, things of that nature. I was working with Gay Reporting Center, which is through the juvenile justice system, and one of the young men who was just by his posture and you know, let's just be honest, he had a lot of tattoos on his face and I was like, I don't know if i can do this and sound good, but I realized, how intelligent he was. And he helped me develop a career program that was going to be conducive to people who look like him, because that's a part of my story I haven't had to share. And so that's why it's so important to understand that I have, I bring a lot to the table, but I don't bring everything. We hear the saying about, you can't have a seat at the table, bring a chair. Mm -mm. If you don't get a seat at the table, build the table and then invite others to come sit at the table with you so that they won't have some of the same shared experience. You know, they, they don't have to share that experience of being ostracized. Most times when it comes down to people wanting to pick up restorative justice and put it down when they get ready, especially when it comes to the traditional criminal justice system, they're like, oh, okay, well this worked for this long but it's not working anymore. So let's bring Dr. Jones in to do something, do a program. And I'm like, no, that's not how that works. It's the way of life. And I, I can't meet with them at the same place where they were harmed. You can't heal in the same place you've been harmed. And I don't care what the situation is. We've all experienced some type of trauma. And if you're not in the process or in the frame of mind to heal from that trauma, then you're going to continue to either keep yourself busy. So now you're just piling trauma on top of trauma. And the next thing you know, you explode. Now you in the, now you in the you know, criminal justice system because you could not manage your emotions there's a young lady, there's a family. It's really not even, it started off with the young lady. And that's why it's so important. And when I say I have a passion for children and youth, I really have a passion for the entire family because when you're, you're talking about youth, they're connected to someone. And so to sum this story up, mom was a hothead. She will curse you out. You say hello and she's going to curse you out. And I'm like, dang, is, is that serious? And I could have easily wore my emotions on my shoulder or whatever the case may be, but I called her one day. I was like, I'm not even calling you because one of your children got in trouble. I calling to just check on you because girl, you be cutting up. And I'm just trying to figure out why you cut up so bad. And that was because I kind—I of, knew the language. I knew when the time was right to have this type of conversation. She was like, "Doc Jones, no one ever asked me. Usually when I, you know, I get, I get anxiety when the phone ring and cause I'm thinking it's another call about someone of my girls and did not. And I'm like, Nope, they doing good. Matter of fact, I just walked past the class, both of them in class. They doing good. One, I just need to talk to her cause she keeps sitting in the back. She don't need to, in the back. She needs to sit in the front or need to take her to go get some glass. Something needs to happen. I think that's it's something with vision. And she's like, for real, and I'm like, matter of fact, if you um, come up to the school today after school, I have a form for you. You can go to American Best right now because they got a you know, little voucher system, all that good stuff. So that's the referral. Then that was me asking her, how was she feeling? That was me helping her understand that every time you get a phone call, it's not going to be a bad phone call about something your child did. I'm I'm calling just for the total opposite and I'm calling to check on you. And so when it was all said and done, I saw the improvement with the children. I saw improvement with mom. That's another success story that wasn't just with one child, but it was actually with several children
1: and with the mom. And we need to understand and listeners need to understand that restorative justice is embracing. It's the entire wraparound system and it, it's not a one shot thing. It's not stepping into a classroom here, I'm going to do a a training with this class and move on. However, you make some good points about just the small things that people can do, making those positive phone calls, just asking how is someone doing? Are there some other recommended classroom practices before we leave today? See if there are some other takeaways when perhaps our educators, our parents, don't have that wraparound system.
2: Yeah, most definitely. So I always love to start with a check-in every Monday or every day, you know, depending on your capacity, because I understand educators, we have lesson plans we have to cover, test quizzes, all those different things, assessments. So being able to have a check-in and that check-in can consist of, one of the things I use is a pain chart that I took uh, offline and then I laminated it. The pain charts from zero to 10, zero being no pain, 10 being the worst pain possible. And then also helping them tap into critical thinking skills. So not only am I checking in with you before I even get to the lesson, but that check-in can be conducive to meet the needs of, was minister, he said, are you teaching to remember or are you teaching to think? And I think that's a powerful message. And even though that's something that I came across yesterday, It really, it really did something for me when it came to thinking of like the question you're asking so with that check in. Making sure that every activity you have is helping them tap into critical thinking skills, even if you don't use that language, and then asking them how do you define pain, because most times, most of us are going to navigate towards physical pain. We're not thinking about emotional pain, financial pain and any other type of form of pain that exists. And so being able to have a conversation about that, but then it also help you understand where that child may be when they enter the classroom in terms of, are they ready to learn today? Because if that child say they had a 10 and that's the worst pain possible, are they prepared? So you're gonna have to learn how to pivot. And I know we use that word way too much now, but you have to pivot in a way that's gonna meet the needs of the people you serve. And that day, each day looks different. So having that check-in along with a checkout and then asking them to teach you something so there's reciprocity and showing radical love. What does radical love look like? I could tell you I love you, Amy or Joy, and say I love you, but what does that look like? Cause love is a verb, it's an action. And so, doing that, providing that check-in is a form of radical love. The next thing is reciprocity, where I talk about they learn from me, I learn from them. We can reimagine education. Like, how do we set the goals? What are the, what are we looking for? What when you're in this class, what would you like to talk about? How does this relate to the subject matter? And then incorporating those things at some form of fashion throughout the school semester so that they can see that you value something that they offered and then you implemented it and then how you properly execute that. And then the other thing is we, we got reimagine education, reciprocity, radical love, and restore humanity. I think one of the greatest things is again. I started off talking about p- the power of storytelling, and I know oftentimes as educators we have a barrier in terms of how much we are able to share with our with our youth because we want to keep the lines of communication open. We want to make sure we set some healthy boundaries, but at the same time you have to use a spirit of discernment in terms of how do they humanize your experience and how do you humanize theirs, so that you can start to see some shared commonal- commonalities as well as the differences and be able to have a robust conversation about it so you can help them understand that it's okay to have a healthy debate, that every debate does not have to lead to somebody being offended. And so defining values, defining respect, what does morals and beliefs look like? Who is their support system and why is that support system so important? Who is that favorite person? What is so important about that favorite person? Maybe that teacher can form a relationship with who that favorite person is, depending on what the situation may be. And then also discussing what is discipline? What do you think is the proper way to handle the situation when someone is harmed? or even think at the beginning of the school year, I remember growing up that the teacher would hand us the rules. It wasn't something that we had a buy-in or a say-so about the matter, but it would be great if you can set, you know, come to an agreement in terms of, let's all set the rules and set the tone for what we do in this classroom. Because even research shows that when you allow children to provide some type of feedback or offer any type of tips or rules in terms of what this is gonna look like when when they are in this brave space, which is your classroom, that the likelihood of them brave and those rules are slim because they're going to hold themselves accountable, even if they don't have the language to understand what accountability really is.
1: You have provided so much for us to take away, and really a lot of information that we need to consider and, and really think about as we move forward with our children at home and in the classroom. You have inspired us, and I really know that the listeners will have been inspired by. Everything you've shared today, thank you so much for being with us. I, I thank you and I appreciate you. Thank you, thank you, wonderful woman of God.
0: Thank you. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Same, the feeling is mutual.
2: I've enjoyed myself. Didn't put lipstick on for y'all today with my hoodies.
1: <laughs> Enjoy oh. your day. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson.
0: We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching.
1: We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you. Our listeners, did theory
0: or practice win the match?
1: I think it was theory probably this time.
0: Uh, practice.
1: Until next time, we're Dr. Amy. And Dr. Joy.